Hey, this is Ultima Sharaja from the Medicine Redefined podcast. And when I'm not interviewing practitioners who are redefining our approach to healthcare, I'm nerding out with financial residency. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I am your host, Ryan Inman, and thrilled to bring together, I think, a very fun show today, learning all about investing in farmland. We've got a special guest, someone in our community has come on that's going to I think help all of you be able to mentor pre-meds or med students, give some advice on how maybe they can have med school for free or at least somewhat paid for. And then we've got on Michael Relvis through our financial malpractice segment going into another insurance horror story, which I feel like most insurance stories are horror stories, but Michael tells a really good story. And I think it's something that you all are going to be able to learn from. Now, before we get in the show, here's a quick message from today's sponsor, MedEvolve. And they are a company that empowers physician practices to work smarter with data-driven services. Are you tired of dealing with headaches like finding and retaining quality billing staff, high turnover, or limited resources? Many practices are opting to outsource all or part of their billing process to help relieve the burden on internal staff, free up those resources, and reduce overhead costs. For those who wish to keep billing in-house, it's critical to have solutions that provide automation and give you the ability to monitor staff productivity and their effectiveness, especially for remote employees. MedEvolve can help you leverage data in AI solutions that bring answers to the forefront and take the guesswork out of revenue cycle management. Let them show you how. To have this great company help you work smarter, reduce the cost to collect, and get paid on time, find them at Dr. Podcast Network slash MedEvolve, M-E-D-E-V-O-L-V-E. The link is also in the description of the show you're listening to right now. All right, well, without further ado, let's jump in and talk to our special guest today, which is Artem, the CEO of Farm Together. I'm a big fan of what they're doing. I love what they're doing. I invest in it as part of my investment portfolio, which Big disclaimer here is that this is not investment-related advice. Please don't take it as such. This is just really some educational tips and tricks. Like we always say, it's bad entertainment, quote-unquote, but it really is just for entertainment purposes only. This is not an endorsement or think that you need to invest any certain way because I honestly don't know you or anything about you, and that would be absolutely foolish to take advice from someone who has no vested stake in understanding your risk tolerances and what you have going on. But I do want to jump in and talk about investing in farmland as an alternative asset. Our guest has a ton of experience with it, and I really like their platform. So let's jump in and learn more about investing in farmland. Artem, welcome to the show. So happy to have you here. Thank you, Ryan. Great to be on the show. I'm really excited because one, I like talking about investing and just different things that are out there. And this is a non-traditional investment and real estate is kind of the sexy topic of late in the past few years as physicians have tried to figure out how to find more passive income earning strategies. And I've invested with you guys. I like what you guys are doing. And we'll probably talk about the apple orchard at some point, but let's talk just about investing in farmland and how people can actually do that because I still run into people all the time that email me or we talk because I'm nerdy and like to talk about this stuff a lot. And they're like, how do you actually buy farmland? Isn't that like super expensive? Up to a few years ago, that was exactly right. Average farms are getting larger and larger in size. It's also very opaque, fragmented market. There's no Zillow for farmland. And so up to recently, you had maybe a couple of publicly traded stocks. You had some 
funds where you needed to have a lot of money to invest in. And it wasn't very transparent. There was no control. You couldn't really get more tax efficient structures, especially for accredited investors, more sophisticated investors. It was just almost nothing there. And so Farm Together was a way for me to solve my own problem, which was I also couldn't invest properly in farmland that I had the first-hand experience with investing on behalf of larger organizations. And so that's how Farm Together came about in 2018, really trying to solve a problem for myself and for hopefully everyone one day to make it easy to invest in farms. Yeah. Isn't that funny how most businesses start? It's like, well, I wanted this. It didn't exist. Therefore, I made it. I love it. So very classic story. It is. I think it's interesting because everyone can picture like a piece of land and whether they're growing, whether it's permanent crops or row crops, you can picture this in your head of, okay, hey, this is a farm and someone owns this, someone farms this. But where do the returns come from when you're going to own a farm? Because you guys aren't out there like actually farming. You're working with professionals and maybe talk through where the returns would come from if someone was to invest in farmland. Yeah, great question. And farmland is in a lot of ways like real estate. It also is a little bit like infrastructure, a little bit like timber, a little bit its own beast, but you can broadly simplify it as real estate. And real estate makes money from two sources of income. It's the price appreciation of the real asset, and it's the cash flow potential generation of the asset. And so in farmland, typically the way it works is that you buy the land. So we always buy 100% of the land. We buy the title to the property. And then the land is either rented out or contracted out to a professional farmer. So we're not talking maybe what some people might have when they had like a farmer's market farmer, but someone who's been doing this professionally, sometimes for generations, they're well capitalized, very tech and business savvy. And so they will rent that land and you as an owner will receive rental income. Now, where the comparison with real estate breaks down is that you can also structure the deal such that you receive revenue share, a profit share, or even you essentially invest in the operating business of a farm where the farmer will operate to a spec and you carry the full kind of expense of the farm, but also all the profits. Now, just to you know simplify it, the way you invest in farm together is that you invest one time and you can forget about it. Like we take care of everything. So all that day-to-day stuff, the management is done by us, but you are exactly right, Ryan. The farming itself is done by the farmer. So you are owning a real asset that is professionally operated. And there's row crops and permanent crops. And maybe talk about the differences between the two. And then primarily what I was attracted to you guys, I know you have some row crop stuff, but I saw a lot of permanent crop stuff on your platform. And that's what I invested in with the, the orchard. Maybe talk just quickly about the difference between the two and then why you guys look a lot of, why you guys invest in a lot of permanent crop uh, farms. Yeah, absolutely. So in farmland broadly, you have three types of farms. You have your pasture land, that's where your livestock is and where the cows graze. And that's about a, a 900 billion to a trillion of the United States, two and a half trillion dollar farmland market. So it's a big segment, but we only focus on cropland, which is about 1.5, you know, 1.8 trillion dollars. And within cropland, you indeed have raw crops and permanent crops. Raw crops is your corn and soybean. It's the stuff that you plant in rows, although permanent crops also go in rows, but it's also called annual crops. You plant them every year and really you can plant different things. You can plant different periods and all the value is actually in the land, which you sometimes call dirt, <laughs> but really is just dirt that you buy the soil. And those types of farms uh, lend themselves really well to that purely rental income where you rent it out to a farmer. And what's important to note, the farmer typically pays every year, every three years, they pay upfront, you receive the cash in March. And so you carry very little risk 
as to what happens to the harvest and the, the farmer. You carry little downside, but also little upside. So that's row crops. And because of that low risk profile, also the returns tend to be lower. So we'll talk a little bit about returns. We target net IRRs, net annualized returns of about 7 to 8% in this space. And this is both cash flow price appreciation. So myself and our team, we come from more the permanent crop investing background. So our investment director, he spent many years at Prudential, which is a large institutional investment fund focused primarily on permanent crops. Permanent crops are primarily grown in West Coast, although they can be grown in a lot of different places. It's just West Coast is more conducive to that, especially California. And in permanent crops, you have indeed the kind of trees or bushes that are planted and they're staying on the land for years, decades. Because of that, you have more value in the trees as well. There's typically those crops are more specialty crops. They have smaller markets. And because of that sort of free nature, you need a farmer that will take care of the land long-term, you need longer-term contracts. And you typically need that more of a direct operated model, more of a profit share. And because of that, the permanent crops typically have higher returns and higher risks. So we target anywhere from 9 to 12 net annualized returns target, although some deals can have 15% plots. Those deals also have higher complexity as well. So as you said, Rania, we do both and definitely both need to be in your farmland portfolio. It's just as a slightly different sub-products of the broader farmland product market. So, you know, in all of my due diligence, and I am not a farmer, I would actually like to be one without all the really hard work. So this is like perfect for me because I get to own it, but not have to do the work. Of course, there we go. But when I looked at in my research, obviously this is very buy and hold. You're not like transacting, oh, I'm going to buy the farm and sell it like a stock. You're investing in a long term and it's somewhat illiquid, but it's really uncorrelated to market returns because there's not a lot of volatility and not to really jump into COVID and to get into that kind of craziness of horrible 2020. But how did you guys see volatility and what you were trading and what you're owning during really peak uncertain times where the market's selling off 30, 35%. Yeah, no, it was crazy. And I was working back in 2008, nine. Oh, there wasn't any volatility then either. (laughs) For everyone listening, that was the great recession. And this was worse in some regards, both up and down. Yep. So yeah, you know, that's a great segue to farmland performance historically. So just to answer your question, during 2020, farmland was in Q1, down 0.1%, so essentially flat when everything else was down. And then in Q2, Q3, Q4, it continued its uh, trend of going up, you know, by a couple hundred basis points a quarter, one, two percent. So overall, farmland as an asset class actually has had, I believe, only three negative quarters. The index that we started tracking in 1992, very stable, very resilient asset class. So that's, I think, what is another really good Thing about this market is it's invest and forget. And you mentioned liquidity. Typically, farmland is a 10-year hold, 8 to 12 years. We are working in secondary market, but it's not there yet. There's some pilots that we've done. But ideally, we'd love to give people an opportunity to exit after one year, two years, although again, encourage you to hold it long-term. So yeah. I think probably the industry, whether it's in farmland or even real estate, those platforms are working all to bring that secondary liquidity. I wonder if introducing a secondary market like that, even if it was for your own people that are investing with you, if that would induce more volatility during times of mass exodus from investments and the market's down 30. I wonder if that would 
introduce more volatility or not, and not to get super nerdy, but I looked at it as definitely a buy and hold. So those that are afraid of commitment, it might be a little harder to go, oh, I'm going to make one investment and this money is locked in. But it's very similar to how it should be when you buy a home, when you're investing in other syndications or other types of somewhat illiquid markets where it's not just a stock or a bond. But as you were talking, it opened up a lot more questions I had around the returns, how they're generated, what you guys expect going forward. Because with permanent crops, it's a higher return, but is there a time of when you own the investment that the peak returns have more risk involved in them? An example would be is if you bought a piece of land and there's nothing on it, and now you've got to go plant all these trees versus do you buy farms that are already producing, right? And maybe that's perceived less risk. Like, How do you guys handle that in the marketplace? Yeah, right. That's a really good question and spot on in terms of the resilience of risk. So when you buy an existing farm, you typically already, you don't have any risk of planting, execution, right? The capital improvements, it's all there. And so those farms are actually much harder to find. They trade at substantial premiums to farms that are a little bit of a fixer upper. And those farms are priced by a lot of different players in the market. And we don't see them that often, actually. When you have a farm that is a bit more of a improvement project or a planting project, those tend to have high returns because of that. And that's, I think, where we really shine because our background is in that sophisticated, complex institutional investing in permanent crops. We know a lot of great operators. We know how to deal with budgets, with CapEx. And that's what you pay us for in fees is to help you take advantage of the more complex side of the market that just you or me even being outside of it going to do suddenly that organic apple orchard planting. I mean, that is not that easy. So you need great partners there. And that's how we separate the risks. We actually have a whole white paper just on risk on our website. So people, when they look into specific deals, they can read through all the risks that and I'm sure we will go through that. But that's a great point. And then to your point about the kind of where does the risk of the cash flows come in and what's the breakdown of the returns, so in buying an existing orchard or existing kind of cash flow and property, a lot of your returns will come from that cash flow. And it's really the price appreciation that we underwrite is typically not more than 3 4% a year. And that's based on historically farming has appreciated by 5.9% in the last 50 plus years. So there's a lot of really good reasons why land keeps appreciating, growing population, improving diets. But a lot of your returns will come just from cash flow component, maybe some improvements. When you are investing in a development opportunity, like the Apple Orchard that you mentioned, that one is a great example for your listeners. There's about three, four years of development, but after that, it starts producing organic branded variety of apples called Cosmic Crisp, which is a new, amazing variety that's been developed by the industry. They spent something like 20 years and half a billion dollars. So it's very, very sophisticated apple. And the industry has a exclusivity on that apple. So for about five years, you're getting cash flows that are like 10, 20, 30% of your investment. You are investing in a more risky product than investing in a stable cornfield that we know corn has been around for hundreds of years, will be for another hundred years. And that's why I think at the end of the day, diversification is the name of the game. Think through different whole periods, cash flow needs, risk profiles, and ideally build a portfolio of farmland properties. Yeah, I firmly believe in diversification and I was fascinated as I started digging more into farmland and how it's just uncorrelated to the markets. I think you glossed over it and I want to come back to just really quick. Mm -hmm. The markets experienced extreme volatility 
and we saw 30, 35%. Then of course it rallies back and is now making new all-time highs and keeps marching along. But farmland had an even quarter and then it appreciated not a lot, but it was moving up another, and you said 100, 200 basis points, which is one to 2% for everyone. And it didn't experience a giant drop down. And I think that is a really cool characteristic of farmland is that, look, you invest in this. Now, I think you'll do well, but you invest in this. This isn't like you're going to buy Bitcoin and it goes to a million dollars and to the moon and you're retired in six months. But this is like the tortoise and the hare concept. This is the tortoise. You invest and you just let it go little by little and it's going to do really well the longer you hold it historically, right? Past performance doesn't indicate future. Uh, I, value. I think it's what we call the healthy portion of your investment that I think investing be a little bit of fun. So let people invest into Bitcoin, chase some crazy cryptos or GameStop stock, right? Have your fun. But you need to have your core kind of product group in your investment portfolio. And I think that farmland is a great foundation because it's long-term stable, uncorrelated, exactly as you said. And then two other things to mention Excellent inflation hedge. Farmland products are literally components of thousands of the products that go into CPI. And so historically, farmland has done even better than gold and recession resistant. It's done very well in this crisis. 2008, farmland was up 23% when everything was again down 30, 40%. Yeah. And you can't eat gold. I'm not clowning gold for some of these that like it. I actually do own some gold because I'm a super nerd. I'm a long-term coin collector and I have some gold coins, but I liked farmland and I viewed it very different than gold. I know that they have a lot of maybe similar characteristics, but again, this isn't 90% of my portfolio. This is a sliver of my portfolio, but let's unpack really quick the orchard that I invested in and we can pick on that because I actually put money into it and I don't mind. And I think it'll be fascinating to uncover in the first few years, we have the most risk that we would have, right? It's not like 10, eight, nine years from now when it's producing apples, it's going to be really easy to be like, there's the money that's coming in. But there's a lot of risk that's involved in those first few years. Maybe talk a little bit about why it's so risky in those first couple of years and what really goes into kind of getting it to be a more stable, safer asset as time goes on. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. So really good question. The listeners, this orchard that you invested in is called Galaxy. It's named after the cosmic crisp variety of the apple because it's really beautiful apple with its little dots that look like the stars. It's just a stunning, stunning apple. <laughs> I'm a little bit of an apple nerd myself. So so it's not just a development, but an organic development, which it means that the first three years, there's a number of protocols that the developer needs to follow to plant the trees to make sure that they're all in line. And that's where exactly most of the risk comes in. Now, we have very high confidence in this partner. So the partner is Stimult. It's the second largest Apple grower in the country. They developed this Apple together with other players, well-capitalized. I think they're third-generation farmers now going way back when. So just an incredible story as well that we all get to participate in. And so this, I think we have full confidence that they'll develop it to the spec, but there, there is that risk. Now, I think what alleviates some of that risk is, one, you still have the value of the land, that pays no matter what with you. B, for those listeners who are unfortunate enough to be paying top marginal tax rate right now on the investments, on the earnings, the way farmland works and the deal is structured is that all the capital spent is most of it is depreciable year one. So to unpack that, what it means in simple terms is that those expenses will show up on your K1, on your report that you receive every year as you file your taxes, and that you can use that to offset 
the income that you're receiving. So it'll be essentially expense that you can offset against your income. And so there's, I think, really good tax savings in the first few years. Now, of course, I have to say that that's what makes it the riskiest, but that's also what makes the deal a net target 15% IRR over a period of 10 years and cash flows in the peak year will be at highest, you know, 20, 30, 40% of your investment. And why, as I did my research, it made intuitive sense to me, but I think it'd be a lot more impactful hearing it from you of why those returns would be so high in certain years versus other years. And then obviously you've given at least this project, the reason why it might achieve a little bit higher return than normal, but why would some of those years be so much higher than other years? So what you have basically is the apples hitting peak yield. So you have the yield going up in certain years. And then you also have that period of exclusivity where there's no one else can basically produce it except for the club that created it. And so you really are capturing stunning margins. And then as that exclusivity goes away, the margins will slowly come down as more supply rolls into the market. So all that is underwritten for but that's why you have that curve of certain years being better with cash flows. And so they've got this monopoly on the market for a few years and no one can produce it. And then when that expires, you can't just like all of a sudden, well, hey, like a row crop, like, oh, I've got it this year. Yeah. Like then they have to turn around and plant it or can they start planning ahead of time? So then when it rolls off, they're already in production. You know, that's a great question. I have to actually go back to look at that. I know that I think... There's at least 10 years of that exclusivity. I believe that. It's good to understand though, like how that dynamic works, because that is very unique as you're looking at it and every situation is unique, but it's interesting because there's even that much little nuance and complexity that can go into some of these things. And that's why I really liked partnering with some pros that go through and learn and, you know, seek these kind of competitive advantages. I always am a glass half full. I just, I always look at things for the best, but. I know that there could be some people out there that are going, guys, this sounds great. What's the catch? What's the largest or one of the largest risks in owning farmland, specifically permanent crops that you can see and tell us of like, hey, be aware of this because this is a large risk? Yeah, I would say that with permanent crops specifically, probably the single largest risk because water is so important. And thankfully in Washington, there's too much water in the Washington state where the galaxy orchard is, but in California, water is number one. If you misjudge water, you could end up with essentially a stranded asset. It's land that doesn't have water and its value might drop massively. So we spend a lot of time underwriting water and only by land and excellent water districts with excellent water rights where we clearly see how we can get water. But that's a big risk that we talk through almost on every Californian deal. Thankfully, our investment director literally wrote the white paper on water and a lot of our technology is spent on analyzing the water districts and the water markets. But it's mostly a risk for those who come outside the space where you just wouldn't even think about that. That's a big risk. Some things that people might be thinking more in the top of the head for a lot of people is what happens with weather or fires or something. And that's always a risk that is very vivid, <laughs> very visual, but a lot of farmland isn't near the forest where the things happen. And for the reason why a lot of permanent crops are in California is because you have very stable climate. So of course, certain hail events may happen. And in rare cases, it does happen, but you still have one, the value of the land to fall back on. That gives you a friction for your value of the land for the farm. And there's certain insurance you can get, although not all of it. 
And so at the end of the day, there's also diversification matters. But typically when you have those events, you have prices going up as well. And so then that means that, especially if you're left standing or just part of your holdings was affected, the rest will catch up in the cash flow. Because, you know, Ryan, as you said, you can't just day one switch it on and suddenly have more apples. Like, no, you've got to plant the trees and you've got to wait three years. If you didn't pick cards, you have to wait 10 years before you can get new supplies. So, and, and that's, by the way, a really good point I want to mention is sort of another risk is you do have volatility in permanent crops and it smooths out over time, smooths out over different regions. But unlike raw crops where like, this is the rent I'm going to get to the dollar every year, in permanent crops, you might have a great year, you might have a down year, but overall on average, you'll still come out better. And when I was doing some due diligence and I was thinking through how bad could this get? Elementary version of me looking at this was like, well, weather, fire, California, that big earthquake, that's probably going to kill us all at some point. There's some issues that California has, but it's not going to be like, oh, look, here's the farm Ryan invested in. Let's only hit this with bad weather. Pretty much everyone in the region is going to have it. So if your suffers, the whole kind of region will suffer, which means that supply and demand will kind of hit a shock and yeah, likely exactly. to recover in a following year where maybe prices might be higher is how I at least walked through it in my head. Is that correct in that thinking? Yeah, that's very right. And when you look at the farmland index overall, the volatility of it has only been about 6 7%, which is actually much lower than real estate. And that is because precisely of that nature where if you really dive down into first principles of the asset, like what does the asset really represent? Well, it's the productive value of the land that grows. This is as fundamental, as real as it gets, right? If we start looking really at investing, which is, are people buying the products that my investment produces? Are they using it, right? You know, we could stop using cell phones, although that would be hard, right? We stopped using certain parts of real estate now because now offices are closed. You might not be, I don't know, traveling as much now. Who did the first step in you know, the math flow pyramid, if you want to go there, and water to a certain extent? And I think that's what gives farmland such a strong intrinsic value and downside protection. You've just got to buy at the right price, which we always look at, is making sure that we're not overpaying. That's a key to any real estate transaction. Price matters a lot. Yeah. In real estate, you don't make money when you sell. You make money when you buy. That's perfect. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. And you mentioned technology and water and how that is, but I'm curious, like how has technology really helped you and also the industry as a whole in the last decade or so? Because I feel like everywhere I'm reading and as I went nerdy and was researching, like it was a ton of tech that was being introduced and it was new tech. It wasn't like this is an ancient technique that's been used. No, here's this tool that's in the last five years has reshaped this. And here's another tool that's reshaped that how much is tech playing now and then in the future, five, 10 years from now, if someone is to invest in like I did with the, the orchard, I'm holding for 10 years roughly. How is tech going to change over those 10 years during my holding period? Yeah, tech, I would say, has been one of the key components of why this market is opening up. And before I talk about the on-the-farm tech, I actually want to draw attention to the sourcing tech that we use. Because as I mentioned, the market is so opaque and fragmented and the reason that it hasn't been really accessible to the same extent that, again, real estate is that underwriting a deal, putting a deal together just takes a lot of time and effort. And so you start looking at larger farms to kind of spread your fixed labor over larger you know, field size. That means that you don't look at smaller farms. You also need larger pools of capital. And then that locks out the market from retail investors. So a lot of technology that's come out in the last five years, even in the last year, is things like imaging, 
better technology to work with documents, which actually is a lot of work just dealing with documents, better ways to glean information from satellite imagery and drones on the site farm equipment as well. So that has really sped up our process where now our investment team is able to spend the time actually thinking about the investment, about the art of investing versus spending two days getting information about water in a particular water district from a county that's all paper. (laughs) It's really like talking hours and days to get information that now we can get in a matter of seconds. So that's been huge help. And then on the farm level, just the sheer connectivity on the farms, the broadband, the new Starlink, even satellites, things like that. And it's literally last month, like I have a dish that we bought for that things out. I cannot understate, oh, sorry, cannot overstate how important that is because farms are far by definition. And a lot of the work is driving there to do something that sometimes you can do remotely. Irrigation is a great example where right now we have a farm where our foreman used to drive there, switch on the tab, wait eight hours, switch <laughs> drive back. It looked like I could do that just through my computer. So in the next five, 10 years, we will see tremendous increase in productivity. And that will lead also to more people wanting to become farmers, I think. It's a very lucrative profession, very interesting profession. And increased productivity of the land, which then will flow to the value of the land. Because if your land can produce more, it has more value, right? That's simple math. Yeah, I think that's interesting how tech is going to be reshaping. And Starlink is, for those that aren't familiar, it's... Elon Musk, as he's shooting off his rockets with SpaceX into space, he's carrying a bunch of satellites with him and he's created a whole nother company that is basically giving 5G internet and soon to be cell coverage to the entire world, basically. I mean, this guy's created so many fascinating technologies and this is going to be one of those kind of byproduct tech pieces that's going to help everyone it's interesting to see how it's going to help with farmland. It's helpful with farmland, yeah, because it's very connectivity is the number one issue that farmers complain about. Amazing. I can't wait to see where that goes. And as I did my research at midnight, 1 a.m. through the internet, and of course, then you start Googling something, you go down a giant rabbit hole, it's 3 a.m., and I'm watching how different tractors are working on different farms. And it's fun just to see like even stuff that's coming where it's fully automated, like autonomous, someone's like driving a gigantic multi-million dollar tractor down and there's some cool things coming. And I'm excited to see where this is going to take everything. Cause I think ultimately it's going to drive costs down and increase returns for everyone that's investing in it. And of course, like you said, it's the top of the pyramid. Everyone needs to eat. And I just like how it's so uncorrelated with everything that it definitely fits into my personal portfolio. It doesn't mean it fits into everyone. But like I said in the beginning, and we've talked throughout, I have invested with you guys. I like the platform. For those that have never heard of you or the platform, maybe tell them a little bit about what they would expect and how it would look and maybe the process of investing with you guys. Absolutely. So the website is farmtogether.com. When you go there, First, you'll see a lot of educational materials. We really focus on making it easy for people to understand farmland. And it's really not that complicated. I mean, it's simple, not easy, but it is simple. And at the end of the day, you're just looking for some key factors. We want you to read through the documents and listen to our webinars as well. Like this show, for example, has been great. And every deal that we put out has a dedicated webinar where you can ask Q&A. But the process itself is very simple. And just to break it down, you go online, you register. Right now, unfortunately, it's only available to accredited investors. So you need to have either certain income or total net worth 
it opened to both US and international investors, although I'm not sure how many you know, international physicians you have, Ryan. You never know, but <laughs> predominantly US-based physicians. Uh, and so once you register, you can see different offerings available. And right now we are working on increasing the amount of deals and offerings that we have on the platform because farms have been syndicated out, selling out really quickly. People seem to, especially you know, after COVID, very focused on that. You know, all the things we discussed, like capital preservation, diversification. And when you invest, what you buy is a share in a Delaware LLC that holds the title to the land. So you are, together with other investors, direct owner of the land. So that's super important that you have that as much as possible direct ownership. Every farm has a management agreement with us. And then we take care of everything A to Z, both on the farming side, as well as on the administration side. So you'll receive everything electronically and online, your K1, your tax documents, your payouts. If you invest, you never have to talk to us again if you don't want to. Everything's taken care of. The website is very easy to understand and use. You have your overview portfolio where you can see where your farms are located, how many acres you own, see updates from different farms. And we increasingly want to do more of those kind of stories about the land, about the farmers, give you a bit of a glimpse into the day life of a farmer. So stay tuned for that. And the investment process is also very simple. Everything is done online. We have integrations that allow you to link your bank account, some documents online, and you can invest literally in a matter of minutes and become farmer owner. The minimum is 15000 The target hold period is typically eight to 12 years. Most of the deals are 10 years. And then, you know, while I cannot promise a secondary market and you should not assume that it's going to happen in your investment decision. But I can tell you that we're working hard to bring that and hope to have the ability for secondary liquidity before 10 years, of course. I could understand the need or like the desire request, however you want to phrase it, for a secondary market. But I also think, especially if you're listening to the show, you need to think long-term everything in your portfolios, not just this investment, everything you're looking at. This isn't some hot stock tip. This isn't buy and sell this and try to eke out a little gain here and there. Cause honestly, uncle Sam's just going to eat you up for taxes and it's not going to be pretty. But when you look at this type of thing, come into the mindset of this is one piece of your portfolio and that you should be holding this for the long term. And I actually think you've made the case that as you own this, the longer that you own it, it becomes safer is you're doing because the the crops are now actually up and growing and performing and whether they have some special clause, Hey, they've got this exclusive on this type of apple and it really doesn't matter. It's more, Hey, these things were planted. These things are now producing. It's now stable. It doesn't matter what the markets are doing. It doesn't matter who's president. It doesn't matter on those big key issues that are actually moving and creating volatility. And so I don't know the secondary market, like I get it. But at the same time, like I would only want to be a purchaser, I think, on that market. Well, our ideal investor, and you know, I wish everyone was like you, but life happens. And so sometimes people need to of course. get liquidity earlier. But I wholeheartedly agree with you. And that's how you know, I think about my portfolio, which most of it is kind of new stuff is in farmland. And I think especially in today's environment where all assets seem to be getting bid up, rates keep going lower and lower. Hard and hard to find something that you can say, okay, this is going to be cash flowing. And especially that will maintain its intrinsic value for decades because I love real estate too, but buildings change, cities change. But with this, it's kind of like this has been a farm for many years and will continue being for many years. Now, climate change is something to keep in mind that we actually underwrite for and look at. 
But overall, if it's in a good water district or in a good area, that farm will keep producing for decades and centuries maybe to come. Yeah. And I like it when I log in, I can see, hey, this is what I have. I own 0.293 acres in total. I watch out. I'm going to take over the world. (laughs) Not really, but I just like how I can see where I'm invested and what's going on. And then typically, like how many offerings do you guys have? Because I know that there's a lot of past offerings. I think Mm -hmm. since I've invested, there's been two more investments that have rolled through. But how often do you have investments kind of hit the platform? So because in permanent crops, you tend to do larger deals than in raw crops. We, I think so far, have had maybe one to two a month, or at least that's been kind of January. You should expect more deals coming. So like we're definitely increasing the number of deals we bring to the market. And that's partially because we have expanded our investment team. We see more opportunities in different spaces. And just to keep your listeners at ease, it doesn't mean we're going to compromise on the underwriting standards. The farmland market is two and a half trillion. USDA expects about a hundred billion to change hands every year of farmland. And that's driven by the average age of farm approaching 60 farmers retiring. So yeah, we expect to bring more deals, but never compromising on quality. And I think it'd be really good as we end out, like what's the average deal size? So I know you said that I think 15K was your minimum, mm-hmm. but what's an average deal look like? You're bringing one to two to the platform. Are these $10 million deals, $5 million, $25 million? Like I think give me maybe some perspective. Closer to $5 million all in. Let's say three to six million is probably what you should expect most of the deals, but occasionally you'll see larger deals that can be 10, 15. Occasionally you'll see smaller deals that may be 1 million. It really depends on the opportunity. Sometimes a small farm can be very attractive and sometimes a big farm can be quite compelling. So like we still stay within our lanes, but if an opportunity comes knocking, we don't turn it down. Of course. I like as I'm in there, it's going around at what I have, what I look like. I like you show the ownership structure in a really easy format. And then something that I thought was interesting, the risks and ratings, like how you guys are underwriting and what you see, you say, hey, this is a higher medium risk, higher return concept like this isn't for someone who's looking for extremely low risk low volatility and i think it's a fascinating platform that's why i invite you to be on the show i'm thankful that you came on and again i think give everyone just maybe the last little one minute of where they can find you and what they can expect yeah so we are at farmtogether.com you can also email me personally at artem farmtogether.com a r P-E-M, you'll probably see on the description of the podcast as well. Also in at farmtogether.com. Last few months have been crazy. There's been so much new demand. So we've been a little bit ramping up our capacity to make sure we reply to everyone as well. But typically our standard is to reply to you within 24 hours or less. So by all means, and especially you know, for physicians, a lot of you working on the front lines fighting COVID, we definitely want to make sure that your earnings are in safe and stable assets. And farmland is that. So excited to see more of your listeners, Ryan, on the platform. I think they will because this is a killer platform. You guys are doing a great job. And I like that I can watch webinars when I want and be able to see things as they're going and look forward to doing more stuff with you guys personally. And thank you again for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. All right. Hopefully that interview was great and that you guys loved every second of it because I like talking about this stuff and secretly I get to know a little bit more about the companies that I just can't 
find out even when doing due diligence that it's always nice to talk to the person in charge and get the understanding of the vision of the company. It's, I think, really, really a cool experience to see. And hopefully it was beneficial to all of you. We have a special guest on today. We're not going to be doing a curbside consult. I apologize because we have lots and lots of questions to get to, but this was someone in our community that reached out that wanted to provide some benefit to everyone here on how maybe they could talk to pre-med or med students about paying for medical school. And this is something that I normally don't talk about on the show because most of you have not only gone through med school, but you are now in the payback phase of that, or you don't have debt, or you've already paid back all your med student loans. And so we don't really talk about that on the show, but I want to give some airtime because I think this is really important. So I'm really excited to bring on our next guest. Dr. Devin, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about something that I actually don't know too much about. We're going to get into it. Yay. Thank you for having me here, Ryan. I'm excited. And greetings from Japan. Thank you for getting up early and doing this. I know that everyone listening is going to be really, really excited to hear this because as they're gaining financial acumen and everyone's getting a lot smarter listening to this podcast, they might have pre-meds or med students that are asking them for whether it's financial advice or career advice. And I think it's really cool with the program that we're about to talk about, and that's the HPSP. And maybe you can talk a little bit about what that program is and how it works. So if they're you know talking with med students and pre-meds, that they can give them some really good, accurate information. Absolutely. When I was in college and looking to go into dental school and my friends were looking to go to medical school, the cost of the education is just absolutely daunting. And we know that since then, it just keeps going up every single year. And so when I was starting to explore my options of, gosh, how am I going to pay this after going to an expensive four-year college for my undergrad, I found that both the Army, Air Force, and Navy offer a program called the Health Profession Scholarship Program. And that program offers basically a full-ride tuition, meaning that you have all your tuition, your books paid for with the exchange of service. Now, this program is offered in two, three, and four-year increments, meaning that if they pay for two years of school, you give two years to the Air Force, Army, or Navy, whichever one you sign up for. Now, every year, the funding for this scholarship varies, and the timing of it is very key. And actually, to get into these programs can be quite competitive. So there are a few requirements that I do want to share with your audience that if they have anyone they're mentoring or they're looking to go back to the school themselves, just a few things to keep in mind when they meet with the recruiter. So the one thing that they have to keep in mind is that when the board looks at selecting these people, they're looking for someone who has got good leadership good grades, and someone who also has really good MCAT scores. Because as you can imagine, this scholarship is good whether you go to the most expensive or the cheapest medical in this country. Everyone's going to want to do this because it's basically free money. And I actually did this scholarship to have my education paid for. And it's really nice not ever seeing a bill. I'll be honest. And then the minute you graduate, you don't have to wait for your state boards, your regional boards, for you to be licensed to practice, you start getting paid the minute that you take the oath of office and come right into, for me, it was the Navy. A few things to keep in mind that when you apply for this scholarship, you do need letters of recommendation. And I highly recommend that you get letters of recommendation from the respective service if you happen to have any connections. For me, my father was a Navy dentist for 20 years. He got out right before he started high school. So I reached out to a couple of his colleagues who were in because the military is no different than any other school, any other business. It's all about who you know. And so having a letter written by someone who's a well-respected medical officer, dental officer, whichever route they're going to, that will really speak volumes to the board and hold quite a bit of weight. 
Another thing that I want to remind them with the scholarship is that there is certain age requirements and those age requirements vary if you are going to the military, which has its own medical school in Bethesda, Maryland, or if you're going to a civilian program and it varies if for the Army, Air Force, and Navy. So the typical age is 36 or 42 when you graduate and sign on to be active duty the day after you complete your medical school, dental school education. But again, there's always exceptions. There are always waivers. So again, at the very end, I'm going to share my email address. So if anyone has any questions, I can make sure to connect them with the right recruiter. Another fantastic thing about this scholarship, by also not having to see a bill for your tuition or your books, is that you get a monthly stipend. That monthly stipend is $2,300. Now, the caveat with it, as I tell you, is that that $2,300 is standard across the board. So $2,300 going to, let's say, medical school in San Francisco may not go as far as if you're going to medical school, let's say, in Birmingham, Alabama. But that, again, is free money. The other thing that I want to let your audience know is that during those four years, you are not required to wear a uniform. You have very, very few requirements. You don't have to go and do physical fitness tests. But what they do require is whether you do it before you start medical school, during medical school, or after medical school, you will have to go what's called officer development school. And that is a five-week program in Newport, Rhode Island, where you learn basically how to wear the uniform, the etiquette. I would definitely make sure you're in decent physical shape before you go because you'll do a lot of running. You'll do these exercises called the buttercup where you're going to be on a boat where, at least for me, the Navy, they were like dumping water on us and we were swimming in basically our clothes. But it was kind of fun for five weeks. And you're surrounded by other people that are in your community as well as other community. Now, one unique thing that I tell people that I love about being in Navy medicine, and I think this is definitely true in Army and Air Force, is we get to wear scrubs. We don't have to wear the uniform that much. Our job is that we're part of what's called the staff corps, meaning the military hired us on for our brains, for us to really do our job. So the difference is that I'm not having to worry about a private practice. I'm not worried about hiring someone, but I work with a lot of enlisted personnel. And so that's where that leadership, that sense of confidence is really going to come in once you come into the service. Now, a few other things to keep in mind with this scholarship is that even though let's say you sign up for a four-year scholarship, so you have everything paid for and it's four years of active duty, it's actually an eight-year obligation. So let's say you do your four years and then you decide you want to get out of the military, they can put you in either reserves or inactive ready reserves, which basically means that you don't do the two weeks a month, the one week in a year. So that's something I want to stress to your audience. The other thing I want to stress with your audience with this program is make sure it's something that you're okay with. When you come in for four years, it may not mean you get to live in San Diego for four years. It may mean like very often my first four years in Navy is I did a fellowship, which again, got paid for by the Navy, no different than my civilian friends. And then I went with the Marines and deployed to Iraq for eight months. And then when I came back, I decided to go into residency. So another beautiful thing about the military is they also have their own residency programs. So if you decide you want to stay a little bit longer and have the fun stuff of being a flight surgeon or being a dive officer, you can do those things. Or you can decide, hey, I really want to be a surgeon or I want to be a dermatologist or radiologist. You do your one year and then you apply and it's competitive, no different than if you were outside of medical school and then go into one of those programs. So again, it's a really great deal. It's very competitive. I always say reach out to a lot of recruiters, do your homework. And again, the Army, the Air Force, and Navy offer pretty much the same program across the board. But obviously, when you come in, they each have different places you can be stationed. They each have their own. I say different ranking structures is that an O3 is called a captain in the Air Force and the Army, but it's called lieutenant in the Navy. But very often, we do the same job. We just wear a different uniform and we're located different parts of the world. And I know that the Navy has another type of program that's similar but different. 
Yes. So the other program they have is called the Health Profession Collegiate Program. And the difference with this program is a few things. So first off, you get paid the salary of an E6 active duty the full time that you were actually in school. And the benefit is also you were actually accruing time in service. So those four years where you're getting paid like an E6 is actually accruing four years towards retirement. And again, it's the same thing. You don't have to worry about showing up anywhere in the uniform. You will still go to your office or school. The one time in your four years, you actually get healthcare benefits for your family. So it's as if you were in the service. So this is a great option I tell for people where you would rather pull in a bigger paycheck, but again, you're not getting tuition or books paid for. So all of that's gonna be on you. But let's say you're going to a school where it's not that expensive. You're in state for that, you're, the cost of living's not that expensive. I've had a few colleagues done this route and they like that because by the time that they come into the military and done their payback, they're actually almost halfway to retirement. So for some people, maybe who have a family or again, going to an area where they're okay paying that tuition bill or taking out those student loans, it makes sense. And the Navy is the only branch that offers that program. Neither the Army, the Air Force offer that. For those that might remember, my wife is a physician and she works for the Navy, but she's a civilian and we didn't do any of these cool programs that are out there. But even with in-state tuition and going to KU, it was still a giant truckload of money in order to do that. So both programs are really interesting. I like that the Navy is something different. Thank you so much for coming on and dropping these knowledge bombs for us. We really appreciate that. This is stuff that I don't typically deal with when it's pre-med or med student related and definitely military with a thousand acronyms and all sorts of stuff going on. But so thank you for coming on and doing it and for being a member of our community. And for those that maybe have questions or follow-ups or would like to maybe help put a pre-med or med student in connection with you to maybe help help facilitate some of that who you know, as you kind of put it, how can everyone get a hold of you? I would be delighted to help out anyone who has any questions. So you can reach me either at my email address, which is Devin at gmail.com. And that's D-R-C-O-R-I-E-D-E-V-I-N. Also, that's my name for Instagram, Devin, or on Facebook, Devin. And I would say this is such a blessing to have because like I said, it takes a long time to pay off that debt. And another thing I would tell your audience is if they're looking at other options, I can definitely point them in the right direction. That's awesome. We'll also make sure that we link inside the community. And for those that haven't joined, please do so. Financialresidency.com slash community. And we'll link to all of the good stuff where you're at and a link to this as well. Thank you again for being on. Thank you. All right. Well, I think that was really fun. I think it was really nice of her to give out her email. She will also be in our community, which you can tag her. If you haven't joined our community, please do so again, financialresidency.com slash community. Switching gears over to our financial malpractice segment, which has, I think, become my new favorite segment of everything that we do at Financial Residency. I am bringing on Michael Relvis from MR Insurance. Michael, welcome back on the show. Ryan, I'm glad to be here. I love your stories. So what do you got for me today? So as we're approaching the spring, everybody's coming into thinking about graduation, finishing up and moving on. This is a story from probably a few years ago now. It happens all the time. That was the reality. People will reach out to us pretty often in the springtime in a rush to get their disability insurance in order. It's something that their peers are doing and colleagues, they've been told that they should do it. They need to do it before residency. The honest truth is it doesn't necessarily have to be done within that time. What I like to try to tell people is I think the most important thing is to get informed within that time. What I mean by that is you want to know your options. So there are a lot of things that go into the pricing of disability insurance. 
one of them is the state in which you live at the time you apply for coverage. So obviously when people are finishing up their residency or fellowship or transitioning into the next stage of their career, sometimes there is movement around the country. So this is a person who was in Ohio finishing up her residency. She was emergency medicine in Ohio. At that point, there were several options where we were able to get unisex pricing for her. And she was moving to California, which is the most expensive state to buy disability insurance in. Sure enough, waited a little bit too long. She was already in California by the time that we had a chance to actually get to this. Not only was she in California, she was also set up as an independent contractor. That's trouble. Yeah, most people don't know this, but the discounts that we can often get for people a lot of times are tied to their employment situation, their employment affiliation. So if you're affiliated with a larger institution like a GME program, there are a lot of discounts available. As an independent contractor, you are your own employer. Therefore, there is no discount, right? Other than possible association discounts or smaller discounts we can access. So this person went from having a great opportunity to lock in a good policy, really competitive rates to being in the most expensive state for buying disability insurance in, not really being able to access any reasonable or attractive discounts. I don't know the exact numbers. It's been a while, but probably ended up costing herself 2000 a year more just because we waited too long to do it. So again, I go back, there's this thin line of not wanting to pressure people, not wanting to come off too salesy or anything like that. But really that urgency is very real and it's genuine. It's because you want to know what your options are and you want to strategize appropriately. This person should have purchased a policy before leaving Ohio. It's clear as day, just didn't do it. So it could get pretty bad, but coming into that season where residents are thinking about graduation, it's a good time to get informed. You don't necessarily need to pull the trigger, but at least get informed, learn about what your options are and what the strategy should be. Yeah. We've had clients that have done very similar things before they started working with us. They finish training, they move, they work for some small little hospital or a group within a hospital. They move to California and all of a sudden the rates are ridiculous. And it's like, if you just had done that before, it would be so much better, but can't change the past. You know, and this example was a she, it could have been a he, but stinks that they're paying $2,000 more, but at least they're getting coverage and being able to protect their income. So I firmly agree. We've seen this dozens of times, unfortunately, as we work with clients and lesson learned, get your stuff in and get it done correctly the first time. Don't put some of this stuff off, including estate planning. That is like another notorious one to everyone punts to I'll figure it out someday and someday might never come with that one either. So Michael, thank you so much for being back on. I appreciate you and all your wisdom. For those of you that are looking for term or disability insurance, reach out to Michael, financialresidency.com slash MR insurance. Thanks, Ryan. Hope everybody enjoys it. All right. I think Michael's stories keep getting better and better. I don't know about you guys. I love the segment. But what I really love, and this is kind of our transition, dun, 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 like into our what's happening around our community. And I've hinted at it a few times that we're going to make some changes on the shows. We've found that a lot of you listen to the Monday show and don't necessarily listen to the Friday show, or you listen to the Friday show and not a lot to the Monday show. And it's been a while since we've done kind of a mix up and a change up to the shows and what we're doing and how we're providing content and financial education to all of you. So 
Starting towards the end of this month here, we are going to be doing kind of a change up on the way that the shows are going to exist. We're going to be doing a lot of new segments that I'm really excited to present. I think the financial malpractice was kind of the gateway drug, so to speak, of making some changes. We added the segment in. We've gotten actually a lot of emails on how you guys love that segment. So if you love that segment, you are going to absolutely love what we are doing with Monday and the Friday show coming up. So stay tuned for that, not to give a giant carrot in front of you guys on what we're up to, but I'm very, very excited. And let's just say it's going to include some live stream videos. It's going to include a mix up of what we've been talking about. We're going to have some different segments that are going to come up and I am going to also bring in you guys, the community into the show and further have conversations from stuff that is taking place in our community. So if you haven't joined our community now is the time to do so. Go to financialresidency.com slash community. We're going to be having more discussions and then bringing those discussions back out onto the podcast, which is going to be really, really fun. So I can't wait for you guys to check it all out. Again, this is for entertainment purposes only, even if it's bad, cheesy entertainment. I love that you're here. I'm excited that you're here, but this is not financial planning, investments, insurance, or any other type of advice. I don't think you should be taking advice from anyone on the internet, a blog, a podcast, a YouTube video anything. If you are taking advice from someone, they need to be a fee-only fiduciary person in your corner, your CPA or your attorney. That's it. And if you don't have any one of those, highly suggest you build out a team, but that's on to you. And before we end, don't forget to reach out to today's sponsor. That is Med Evolve. For those of us who know how hard it is to build and maintain a sustainable business, we understand that bringing the right help to achieve our goals is critically important. Get in touch with them for data-driven analytics, workflow automation, and medical billing technology and services by going to drpodcastnetwork.com slash medevolve, M-E-D-E-V-O-L-V-E, and get going down that right path. And like usual, the link is in the description of the podcast. So I know I gave you the disclaimer, but I want to make sure that we can fund those IRA accounts. So my little boy, Wyatt, will also tell you how important the disclaimer is. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you on Friday. Cheers. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Financial residency is not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, or MR insurance consultants, and opinions stated are their own. Michael Ralvis is a registered representative and financial advisor and of other security products and advisory services through Park Avenue Securities, LLC. Member FINRA SIPC, OSJ, 9200 Corporate Boulevard, Suite 390, Rockfield, MD 20850. His phone is 240-683-9700. PAS is wholly owned subsidiary of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. MR Insurance Consultants is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. AR Insurance license number 89139762021-114082 expires 0123.